The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to be looking at uh, Hannah's prayer in verses 1 through 10. And so allow me to read what, uh, what the Lord wrote through uh, Hannah's prayer. This is what uh, the Holy Spirit says to us in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with the noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of Eli. Let's pray. God, what we know not would you grant to us, and what we are not would you help us to be in Christ and him alone. Lord, take these words, sanctify them, so that we can see you rightly. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Uh, one thing I want to point out before we get to this is just a reminder that on the back of your sermon guide, there is a list of the attributes of God that as you go through 1 Samuel, that you ought to look for and see uh, how to live your life in light of who God is and what he has done for us. And you have all these wonderful, wonderful attributes of who he is and uh, you can see some, some application questions at the end once we get through the message. You know, it seems so natural for us that when something really great happens in our lives, we celebrate. When one of our children graduates from high school, what do we do? We put on, uh, we put on a party. Uh, when, we, uh, when someone gets married, what do we do? We not only have a wedding, but we may have a feast and we may have uh, a dance. Um, when, uh, you know, sports teams do really well. We go nuts over that. I was only six years old when the Twins won the World Series for the first time, but I can remember very vividly uh, Gary Gaetti throwing that ball to Kent Herbeck at first base and Kent jumping up and uh, just the, the Metrodome going absolutely bananas. And unless you were the most hardened Packers fan, how in the world can you not have just felt elated when, when Stephon Diggs snagged that, that grab from Case Keenum and the Minneapolis miracle happened? Uh, I, I watched it again this week. 
week and I, I still got chills just watching it. It was such a fun ending, especially against the saints who had what was coming to them from uh, the bounty gate from a number of years before. And, and just what a, what a reason to celebrate. And our text today uh, records how a woman named Hannah celebrated when she saw the Lord come through for her in a very miraculous way. It had nothing to do with football. It had nothing to do with baseball. Uh, it had nothing to do with graduation parties. It had nothing to do with, with a wedding ceremony. Instead, it had everything to do with God being God and God doing what God does. Hannah was this godly woman in a very ungodly culture. She was infertile and her husband took a second wife in order to provide children for him that, that uh, she could not do. And this, this sister wife made life miserable for Hannah, deriding her and chiding her and making fun of her for it. And, and so uh, in this miserable life, she did what only the people of God know what to do in such times, to go to the Lord in, in prayer. And in her incredible faith, she vowed to the Lord that if he would provide a son for her, that she would vow to not even raise this child up to manhood, but as soon as he is weaned, she would give him to the Lord completely to serve him in his, uh, his temple. And what we've seen up to this point is that God used the barrenness of Hannah her infertility as a representation of the spiritual barrenness that is happening in God's people, Israel, and that he has used her pregnancy to foreshadow what he is going to do to give new life to his people, Israel, uh, in a king. And so now she's about to leave the temple. She's about to leave her three or four-year-old son in the hands of the priest Eli, and before she does, she sees this as a reason to celebrate. God had been good to her and he'd been faithful to his people. And she celebrates now with a very, very theological song. And we should approach every biblical text with the question, what does this say about God? And what we get here is a very densely concentrated list and explanations of who God is in his attributes. And Hannah's song ought to make our hearts sing as well. Regardless of your life circumstances, let's uh, let these words sink in and magnify the Lord together. First thing we see here is that we ought to worship God for his deliverance. Worship God for his deliverance. Verse one is absolutely dominated by Hannah's praise for the Lord's working in her life. We will we'll find that it, that it affects her heart, it affects her head, and it affects her mouth and how she responds to this. It says in verse one, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Now, biblically speaking, the heart is the epicenter of our lives. It is the place where all of our thoughts, all of our intentions, all of our inclinations, this is where they, they all come from. Jesus taught us in Matthew 12, 34, that it's from out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And he meant not just that it's your mouth, but your actions and your words and, and all of your intentions all come from your, your heart. And this is... Uh, specifically why the writer of Proverbs tells us to guard our heart above all else because it is the source of life. 
And Hannah is so gripped by the goodness of God that her heart, the deepest part of her, rejoices in him. So her heart is consumed, but also notice that her head is lifted up. It says, my horn is lifted up to the Lord. Now you might look at that and say, boy, that's awfully strange. Because when we're excited about something, we typically don't go and get a horn and hold it up to the sky. But to an agrarian society, as such that Hannah lives in, it would have made perfect sense. When a horned animal gets into a squabble with another animal and takes that animal out, it's not uncommon to see them raise their horn or raise their antlers, bloody as they may be, in victory over their enemy. But here, unlike a victorious rhino who lifts up his horn in his own victory, Hannah realizes that her victory doesn't come from within. She is not the one that's victorious. And in fact, this language of victory uh, ironically displays her weakness. It displays her neediness. She came from a place of shame and, and despair. And not only did she deal uh, with her personal grief over being infertile, but she also had to deal with the cultural shame that it brought with it, as well as the constant ridicule from Panina, her sister wife. When regret and shame and despair, desperation and grief take over, what tends to happen is that our heads and our hearts sink low. But Hannah realizes that it is God that is the lifter of her head. It is as if he takes his, his gentle hand and puts it underneath her chin and lifts up that weary head to the heavens where her help comes from. And the Lord has completely consumed Hannah's heart. It's consumed her head. And now we see that it has overtaken her mouth and what she speaks. It says, my mouth boasts over my enemies. Now, I don't take this to mean that Hannah now says that the shoe is on the other foot and that she gets to taunt Panina now and, and get back at her for all those things that Panina did to her. Rather, it seems that she is rejoicing in the fact that she now has a shield around her. And any attacks that would come her way are quickly absorbed by the goodness of God. She is so wrapped in his shield that any arrow that comes toward her just bounces off of that shield. And why is it that she can so proudly rejoice and boast? The end of verse 1 tells us why. She's totally absorbed in the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Now here's the key word because it's the grounding of all this. Because I rejoice in your salvation. This, disp this disposition of her head and her heart and her, and her lips has changed because of God's deliverance. He has taken her from a life of desperation and moved it to a, meaning, a, a life of meaning and purpose. He has taken her despair and given her joy. He has given her a total new lease on life. And it's implicit here that even if God had not given her a child she would still rejoice in God's goodness because he has changed her heart 
so much. And God may have done this work in her heart, but is he able to sustain it? Well, verse 2, Hannah gives a resounding, yes, he is able to. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. And there is no rock like our God. So she can bank her entire life on the Lord because there is no one that is holy like the Lord. To be holy is to be set apart, to be morally pure, to be entirely good in all that he says, thinks, and does. Hannah is claiming here, and the entirety of the canon of Scripture would agree that God is in a zone all of his own. That no one comes close to him. He alone is God. He alone is good. He alone saves. He alone delivers. He alone is a rock that is strong enough in which we can lean all of our fears, our hopes, our desires, our anxieties, our longings, even our sufferings, and even our good days. He is strong enough to hold us up. And the question that screams out to us in these verses is whether or not we are as enthralled by God as Hannah is here. Are we enamored by the Lord? Are we totally smitten by his love? Are we sold out for the Lord? Do we come here week in, week out, in order to punch our spiritual time cards or to make our lives more practical? Or do we come to meet the living God and see what he says to us? The God who changes our hearts, who lifts our heads, who puts a song on our lips, who is holy beyond all, who alone is the creator God and loves and cares for his people. When we recognize the goodness of the Lord, Everything else in life doesn't seem to be as important. So we need to see and worship the Lord for his deliverance. And second, we need to worship God for his, I'm going to use a couple big words here, for his omnipotence and his omniscience. And if you're thinking, I, that's really big words, it's okay, I'll hang with me. By the end of this, I'll quiz you and you will know what these mean by the time that we're done. Verse 3, Hannah leaves the realm of her personal experience and she enters into the realm of God's general work in the world. She begins with a warning. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. And so Hannah warns against this external action of letting your mouth express what your heart truly believes. She's warning us against saying things that would prove that we believe that we are self-sufficient in ourselves. It's an indictment of the heart that says, be careful not to go around and thinking that you're all that in a bag of chips. That, that was something we said back in the 90s, kids, by the way. It was meant to be, uh, you're, you're not to go out there and think that you are better than everyone else or that God favors you above uh, all others, that you are the captain of your ship. 
Why? Because God is omniscient. Look with me at the end of verse 3. For, there's the ground word again, the Lord is a God of knowledge and his actions are, and actions are weighed by him. To be omniscient is to be all-knowing. The word omni means all. Uh, science uh, means knowledge. And so when you put those together, you have all knowledge. This is an all-knowing God. He knows everything. He knows how many grains of sand are on every single beach in the world. He knows how many hairs you have on your head right now. He knows every detail about the past. He knows every detail about what is to come. He, he knows every single internet search that you have ever done. He knows every thought and action that you've ever taken from the time that you were in the womb to the time of the moment of your death. And we ought not to be proud or boast because the one in whom we have established is holy beyond compare, sees that we are not. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's, he tells us, uh, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verses 4 through 5 now show that God does this. He opposes the proud, gives grace to, to the humble in a very backwards, reverse manner than we would think. It says, the, the bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. We would expect that a warrior, a soldier with all of their tools, with all of their training, all of their weapons, should have absolutely no problem going against a regular peasant who is weak, sickly, poor, has absolutely no weapons and no defense. In the Lord, though, we who are weak and needy have a strength to face anything. The weapons that the world throws at us will be broken. So when we look at that, ultimately, cancer has nothing on us. Divorce has absolutely nothing on us. COVID uh, essentially has nothing on us. Poverty has nothing on us. Those who hurt us with their words have absolutely nothing on us. Even death itself ultimately has nothing on us. In these reversals, God shows his omnipotence. Again, omni meaning all, uh, potent meaning powerful. He is all-powerful. He holds all power in his hand, and he can take our weaknesses and makes them strengths. He takes our heartbreaks and uses them not only for our good, but uses them for the furtherance of his kingdom to grow. These reversals have been, been made possible because of the ultimate reversal that God did in his son, Jesus Christ, in his life. Jesus has reversed our imperfections by being perfect on our behalf. In his death, he has reversed the curse of sin and death in our lives. 
being raised from the dead, he has reversed the effects of death, that we, would, we will no longer be in the grave forever. There's coming a day in which after we leave this world, we will be raised again in a manner like his. Our destiny is not confined to be rotting in a grave or in eternal punishment. And as Hannah here is describing these great reversals, we ought to see that God is holding his hand out to you right now and is essentially telling you life does not need to keep going on in the way that it is. Jesus has given you the opportunity right now to, uh, to reverse the, the curse and the course of your life. If God is opening up your heart today, receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship him for his deliverance and for his salvation. When God opens your heart to this, verse 5 will be true. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger, will hunger no more. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Life will make sense. You won't, you won't feel like you need to constantly go chasing after those things that never satisfy. You'll be filled with purpose and meaning. In Christ, you can find completeness. Look in verse 5. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. Now, this contrast is figurative because Hannah yet at this point didn't have any other children besides Samuel. She will go on to have six more children, but the, the number seven is the number of wholeness and completeness. So saying was, whereas before life didn't seem whole and it didn't seem complete, when we come to Christ, life makes sense and we're complete and we're whole. Our soul as well. Those who chase after other things will come up empty. Trust your life in this. Bank your life in this. Put away those worthless things and worship the Lord and the Lord alone. And third, we should worship God for his salvation. We should worship God for our salvation. You know, fairy tales have been used for centuries in order to help children learn uh, right from wrong, uh, gain some wisdom uh, in certain uh, areas of life, how to avoid danger and how to uh, live more uh, healthy and free or however you want to look at it. Uh, there's a people like Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm. They knew this very, very well in their stories. And, and their, uh, the writer of Robin Hood is one such story that has uh, shaped the culture since it originally appeared on the, the scene back in the 1300s. You have the story of this uh, renegade troubadour, whatever you want to call him, who reverses the fortune of the peasants by stealing from the rich and, and, and giving to the poor. And it was certainly an attractive story for the poor. And I highly doubt it was an attractive story for the rich. And doubtful the pride are in favor of the story of God's salvation. The reversals of God in, in verses 3 through 5 are heightened as Hannah moves forward now with her prayer of thanksgiving. Particularly because she's moving into the realm of salvation and how God tends to move. It can be summed up in the last part of verse 9. Which she says, for a person does not prevail on his own strength. In other words, God is worthy to be praised because we can't do it on our own. 
We can't save ourselves. Sin is too powerful. Left to ourselves, we would choose our sin every single time without God. But in his mercy, God has initiated salvation. And it points to his attribute of divine sovereignty. Romans 11.36 tells us this. For from him and through him and to him are, how many things? Some things? All things. Ephesians 1.11. God works out how many things? Some things? Everything. In accordance with his purpose and will. So Hannah gives honor to God in verse 6 by recounting the fact that the Lord brings death and the Lord gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises some up. In other words, God's sovereignty runs even to our days here on earth. It's not as if he just knows when and where we're going to be born and when and where we're going to die, but he has planned these things. Look in Psalm 39, 16. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book. And get this, planned before a single one of them began. Job confessed in Job chapter 12, he said that the life of every living thing is in his hand, as well as the breath of all humanity. And you have that famous saying of Job in, in Job chapter 1, where he says that the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away, and he is blessed for that. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 30, Jesus compares us to birds and says that not one sparrow will fall to the ground without the father not only knowing it, but having that bird's days in his hands. How much more for us whom he loves. And this is an encouraging attribute because if we know that everything is to God and through God and for God, then guess what? There's no better hands that we can be left in. He is strong enough to keep us and to hold us. And sometimes it takes an event that rocks us to the core to come to grips with this. Think about the prophet Jonah when he was swallowed up by a fish. He recognizes his spiritual pride and God's hand on his life. He says in uh, verse 9 of chapter 2, But for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The backwards notion of salvation continues now in verse 7 of, of 1 Samuel 2. The Lord brings poverty. The Lord gives wealth. I'm adding the Lord in here. Is the Lord humbles and the Lord exalts. The Lord raises the poor from the dust and the Lord lifts the needy from the trash heap. The Lord seats them with the noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. Notice the constant pronoun there. The Lord, he, 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 he. This is all about God. And now in verse 8 tells us the grounding. For 
the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. And he has set his earth on them. Verse 9 concludes this point by showing us that God is not only strong enough to save us from the uttermost, but he's also strong enough to keep us. He guards the steps of the faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness, for a person does not prevail by his own strength. Now John chapter 10 uh, recounts the story uh, in which the Jews demand Jesus. Jesus, why don't you just, just plainly tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one who you're claiming to be? I want to hear it for our, uh, we want to hear it in our own ears of who you say you are. And he responds by saying, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I have given them eternal life. And they never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. <laughs> Think we're going anywhere? Certainly doesn't seem like it. You know, fairy tales are, are good and they're applicable to life. But they're not life-changing in the way that the gospel is. God and God alone can save. And this translates to us in a few ways. First, it causes us to question our worldview. Do we believe that God is truly in charge of our lives and the entire world? If we reject the view that God is the boss, that he's in charge, that he is turning the pages of history in accordance with his plan, we will end up depressed and in despair. Because if God is not charged, uh, in charge of making this world go in a certain direction, for him to come back and make things all new, you're going to watch the news in sadness and life is just going to feel more and more depressing. But there's hope in the gospel. Hannah here proposes a view of the world that is biblical. Second, the song leads us to personally question where we get our own strength from. Where are you trying to get strength from? Are you going through life just clenching your teeth and trying to... Do it on your own. Have you realized that you can't save yourself? It is exhausting to run a race that ultimately not only can you not win, but you can't even finish on your own. Salvation of the, of the Lord is of the Lord. And Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 tells us that it is the joy of the Lord. That is our strength. And fourth and finally, we should worship God for his enthronement. We should worship God for his enthronement. Hannah's prayer is this stunning reflection of the goodness of God to her and to the world. However, when we come to it, it ends very oddly. Look in verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. 
He will give power to his king and he will lift up the horn of his anointed. Now the reason that this is such a weird way for her to end her prayer is that there's no king in the land. Remember, she is still living at the end of the judges period, which the Judges 21-25 tells us that there was no king in Israel and that everyone just did whatever they felt was right. So why then, if we hold to the historical accuracy of the Bible, would we accept that Hannah prayed to God that he would give power to a king when there was no king? And I think uh, we have to assume that there already was, even this early, rumblings and calls for a king. The judge's system was simply not working. And people saw that. And they could look around at the other nations and they could see, look at these kingdoms. They're stable, they're secure because they have a king. So there were already rumblings that were going on at that time. And Hannah was writing, uh, reading the writing on the wall. A king was coming. But when we look at the big picture here of what God was working in this prayer through Hannah, Hannah was the first of two other women that God would use to change the world. Last week, we, we looked at how uh, Hannah was the forerunner of another barren woman in whom God miraculously gave a baby to as well. Her name was Elizabeth. Her, her husband, like Elkanah, was from the Levitical priesthood. And the son that uh, Hannah had in Samuel, his role was to announce the coming king in Saul and ultimately David. And the son of Elizabeth and uh, uh, Zechariah was to be the forerunner to announce the coming king of Jesus Christ. And now here, this woman uh, would, uh, uh, Hannah would also be the forerunner of another woman who was a close relative of Elizabeth who would not be barren, but whose pregnancy would be much more miraculous because she was a virgin. Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have to conclude that even Mary as a young teenage girl living in Israel knew her Bible very well because when she came and visited Elizabeth and it was confirmed to her that the baby she was carrying was the coming king. She prayed a prayer that was very, very similar to that of Hannah. Look with me in Luke chapter 1, please. In Luke chapter 1, we find Mary praying this in verse 46. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Already, this is starting to sound familiar. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Because the mighty one has done great things for me. And his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation. On those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. This is those reversals again. He has toppled their mighty from their thrones. Exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. You see, God was pleased to use this normal, simple woman of amazing faith to bring about his purpose for his people. Hannah was pointing toward the coming king in David. Mary was singing praises for the coming king, the final and greatest king of Israel, who still reigns and rules in Jesus Christ. This king was not anointed with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. He was not crowned with gold and, and, and jewels, but in sorrow and suffering and ridicule and death. He was enthroned by resurrection and ascension. He reigns and rules now from the right hand of God the Father, not in pride or arrogance or dominance, but in love and kindness and generosity and grace and mercy. And 2,000 years later, he is reigning and ruling over all things. He is the rightful king of your life, and he demands your allegiance. He promises life and is strong enough to give it. And this prayer tells us that this king is worthy of worship for his deliverance. He is worthy of worship for his omniscience and for his omnipotence. He is worthy of worship because of his amazing salvation. And he is worthy of worship because he is the king who is ruling and reigning right now and who is coming back. Will you trust in this king today? Let's pray.